On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Brian Tatler from Diamond Head, and you're listening to the Grown Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael. Crank that shit up. So welcome to a bonus edition of the Growing Up Rock podcast. So on the Growing Up Rock podcast, we discuss a ton of influences, a lot of them, bands and music that influenced us growing up, music that shaped who we are today and, uh, you know, what we like musically. We also discuss musicians and how they were influenced by other musicians. Since neither Hollywood or myself are real musicians, we speak mainly on how their music influenced us to crank up our car stereos, basically. If you have not been living under a rock for the past 30 plus years, and you're a fan of Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, or countless other metal bands, then you know the new wave of British heavy metal band Diamond Head. Diamond Head was a huge influence to all of these bands. Songs like Helpless, Am I Evil, which I personally love. That was my introduction into the band. It's Electric and The Prince were great enough for Metallica to include on their Garage Days double record. We are happy to have on the Growing Up Rock podcast, Diamond Head founding guitarist Brian Tatler. Brian, thanks for hanging out with us today to talk a little bit of rock and roll. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Stephen. Pleasure is all mine. Absolutely. So uh, I was reading a little bit about the band's history and... 
I think it's interesting to note that you and a friend of yours basically weren't really musicians to begin with. You just kind of got together with a couple borrowed guitars and some uh, cans to bang on uh, back in 76. Is that right? (laughs) It's absolutely right. Yeah, the biscuit tin drum kit. Yeah, I I used to use my brother's uh, guitar that cost him 14 pounds. And then Duncan had a little drum kit that he made himself with plastic tubs and a biscuit tin and all sorts. And we used to, we set that up in my bedroom and we'd just try and make up some, some songs, you know, very, very basic, absolute beginners. Well, and I think that's awesome to note because any new listeners, younger listeners that we have listening today, you know, it can be done that way. I think people get caught up in these talent shows like The Voice and American (laughs) Idol. And I think that those shows are great for exposing individual talent that maybe wouldn't get the chance. But I think that it's much more important to focus on a full musicianship type band. And you guys focus pretty much solely on original material from the get go, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I always say it's because we couldn't play covers. We weren't very good players. So we just started with like very simple riffs, like one finger riffs on the guitar. Like I could play a little riff on on one string with one finger. And uh, we'd just do these very rudimentary songs and we'd record them. And that's how it started. We auditioned a few school friends uh, and found Sean Harris and he became the singer. And we just, rather than doing covers, and we, we had no idea how to book a gig or anything, and we didn't even have a drum kit, as I say, so we couldn't do a gig. We just decided we would write songs. We would try and write our own songs, and we kept recording them onto a cassette recorder, and we recorded loads and loads of these songs, and they, they probably got better and better as we learned more about instruments and more about arrangement and uh, Songwriting, really. I think we got good like that, but just by stopping in my bedroom mainly and learning how to write. Yeah. Did you guys record? Uh, you had one of those like box recorders where you you push the record and the play at the same time, and it records on a cassette. Is that what we're talking yeah. about? Yeah. That's right. It had a stereo mic, so the singer Sean would sit near the mic, and then the guitar amp would be a bit further away and the drum, biscuit tin drum kit would be in the corner kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, we, you know, we learned, we'd listen back to them and we'd say, it's good and we don't like that bit. And then we'd work on it. And I think we, we must have just thought that was the way you do it. You know, we didn't know anything. There wasn't any rehearsal rooms around here. There was only a little studio and uh, we, didn't, we didn't even go into a studio for three years. We just did everything ourselves, like making these little cassettes. And then we did a couple of little local gigs in pubs once we got a drum kit. (laughs) Yeah. Generally, when we recorded uh, back in the day like that, we always ended up at the drummer's house because his house was the one that you could always practice in because the drums are usually the loudest out of everything. Yeah. Well, we never, ever practiced at Duncan's house, the drummer. Yeah. It always seemed to be my house. <laughs> uh, we, we used a friend's garage. We, we rehearsed in a garden shed, and we also rehearsed in an office. The bass player's dad worked in an office, and on a Sunday, we would have the keys, and we would go in and re- we'd rehearse in the office. 
Yeah. <laughs> right on. Well, what I was reading was that you guys wrote somewhere in the neighborhood of about a hundred songs early on. And yep. out of that hundred songs, It's Electric was the only one that really survived. That's not quite right. The way it, it went is we'd written a hundred songs by the time we made the first album. So there's seven songs on the first album, and they were the best of those 100. We played them all live, uh, so they, it just became apparent which were the best ones, and then we just had to pick enough for 40 minutes. But yeah, we'd written 100 songs. It's Electric was the first song that we wrote that actually made it onto vinyl.
so let me ask you, out of those hundred songs, do you still have that material and do you ever go back and, you know, revisit it and rework it? I have done. Yeah. Also, I don't have all of them. So, I mean, you're talking about like 40 odd years old. Sure. So I haven't kept cassettes of every song. What I have got is probably 30 maybe songs or so that have survived on cassette. And occasionally, we've revisited them. We did a song called Wild on the Streets on the album, on the Death and Progress album, and that was an old song. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we revisited that. And there's a couple of riffs here and there dotted throughout the past, say, four albums, where I've had a riff for years, and I've kind of rewritten it. I thought, this is a good little idea here. And so sometimes I'll borrow an old guitar if you, if you, I think you know it's got some mileage but a lot of the early songs are very very basic and uh, not fit for consumption really yeah I don't I don't think there's any shame in that I think if anything bands like Van Halen have taught us that you can uh, revisit a song 30 plus years later and uh, end up putting it yeah. on a record right <laughs> yes absolutely if it's still good and it sounds good then why not? Yeah. There's a track on the new album that has got a riff in it that's at least 30 years old that I've revisited. Awesome. So let's talk about some of your earlier influences. So you were into Zeppelin, Purple, UFO, Priest, Sabbath, kind of the standard at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. All the great 70s rock bands. Yeah. I like Rush as well and Van Halen, uh, but the obvious bands really from the 70s. Yeah, and it looks like, I mean, basically, you uh, being a British band, uh, you guys were influenced by what was happening over there at the time. I mean, not so much American rock and roll as opposed to the the British sound. Yeah. Well, we had so many fantastic bands. Yes, you did. The level was very high with Zeppelin and, and Purple and Sabbath and all these great band so that was our main influence the the other influence was punk rock and that kind of the energy and the speed and the aggression of punk rock filtered through into my uh songwriting and my you know i think a lot of the early diamond songs had a a bit of a, a mix of both classic rock and punk rock you know the energy pardon me but also the uh the epicness and, and, you know, the guitar riffs would be coming from the more the seventies bands. Yeah. I think probably punk rock's greatest contribution to rock and roll was that punk rock sort of showed beginning musicians that you could become a band, right? hundred percent. That inspired me because previous to punk rock, I thought you'd got to sit in your bedroom practicing for 15 years and become you know, Richie Blackmore or something. And then suddenly these bands are on the television play with three chords. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? Oh, I can do that. I can play like that. Let's go. You know, let's go and do some gigs. It's inspiring to see, you know, guys of your own age on the TV playing some good rock and roll and not having to be, you know, a virtuoso yep. on the instrument. And let's face it, Brian, it was a quicker path to the women at that point, right? <laughs> Yeah, let's do it now. I have 
I haven't got the patience to wait <laughs> <laughs> until I'm, you know, as good as Richie Blackmore. I want to do it now. <laughs> I, I don't blame you. I think that was the right uh, path to choose. Oh, God. Yep. yep. I don't regret that decision. Nah. I saw uh, Judas Priest last night. They were here in town. And, uh, oh, great. I caught their show, and next week I'm going to catch Michael Schenker, Schenkerfest, so. Brilliant. I love Michael Schenker. He's a, he's a wonderful player. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a UFO fan, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially uh, Schenker's playing, his solos are just, mm-hmm. you know, I still try and play, you know, like Schenker from time to time. He's a huge influence on my style. Yeah, and I, I love the fact that, so I guess Tony Iommi is dubbed the Riff Master, and somewhere down the line yeah. they've dubbed you the Riff Lord. <laughs> <laughs> oh well that's okay i'll take that <laughs> that's yeah it's not a bad thing no no i admit tony's come up with more great rips than i have i mean he influenced me so it's fair enough yeah when you were growing up uh the first rock albums you picked up were the zeppelins right zeppelin two yeah. that's the first album i bought out of that stuff, out of those bands, those classic uh, British bands, the Zeppelins, the Purples, UFOs, Priest, Sabbath, do you feel like Diamond Head is more like any one of those bands? I know that you were influenced by all of them, but is there one of those bands that you feel like Diamond Head is more akin to? Not necessarily sounds like, but... Yeah, uh, I would probably go Black Sabbath because... We always liked the way, you know, the riff was a vital ingredient to the song. And then Ozzy would come up with this brilliant top line. And I think we did the same. We, You know, we'd come up with a good riff. And then I'd rely on Sean to do the same, really, come up with a top line, yeah. a, a high vocal or something that will just go on top of the riff. And uh, that's kind of what Sabbath were very good at. I mean, Zeppelin as well. I think Jimmy Page is a brilliant riff writer as well as, as Iommi. So, but between those two, you've pretty much got most of, of the, uh, the DNA of Diamond Head. <laughs> I would throw you guys in my personal ears uh, the earlier stuff I would throw somewhere in between Sabbath and maybe Priest. Priest was good at yeah. doing a lot of riffs and things like that and melody, and I think Diamond Head has a lot of that. My uh, One of my favorite rock albums is Sad Rings of Destiny. Uh, Great album. That was a big influence on Diamond Head, that album. Victim of Change is an island of domination and the Ripper. And we, you know, we devoured that album and tried to... You know, probably stole some ideas from it, and it was it was just hugely influential. Yeah, if you're gonna take take from the best, Sean couldn't really sing like uh, Rob Halford, but yeah. he, Sean was a bit more bluesy. He had a touch of say Paul Rogers or uh, Robert Plant about his style. So it was again slightly different to Priest. So we 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 dug the fastness of Priest and the you know the big riffs, but uh, I think vocally. We would slightly different Diamond Head, in, you know, separated us from uh, from a lot of the metal bands. Really, we had a touch of blues. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the influence that you guys had on Metallica. But 
I think that there's a lot of bands that were influenced by you, not just Metallica. It just happened to be that Metallica had the biggest status and was able to, you know, kind of give you give you guys the push (laughs) that you needed, basically. So you you guys have performed several different times on stage with Metallica. I think two shows that really come to to uh the forefront of that is uh you guys did uh yeah when when i say you guys i mean you in particular you did the big four uh sonosphere festival in nebworth and Mm -hmm. then and then you were invited to do the metallica 30th anniversary in frisco that's right i mean what two amazing gigs two fantastic gigs uh i'll never forget those those shows what is that experience like for you i mean what's it like being in their world at this you know at their status i mean what is that what is a day like for you it's yeah it's very flattering i always feel it's like being a vip for the day they give you a pass with a triple a on it and you can go anywhere you like and you you can you can wander backstage and and uh, chat to you know, crew, and, and so I always try and talk to Lars, and, uh, you know, we, we go back a long way now, so so much uh, history there. But, yeah, it's such an incredibly huge setup that, you know, the way the Metallica machine operates, mm-hmm. that uh, it's an eye-opener, and it's, uh, it's, it's inspiring to see how well it's done at, at that level. A long way up the ladder from from where Diamond's head are. I I always enjoy it. I I, I normally get a phone call whenever they they're over here to say, you know, do I want to come to the gig and do I want some passes and and I've, I've been to see them maybe twenty five times, something like that. And uh, it's, they're always great live. They always put on a a show. It's a fantastic band. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Is a, a machine because it really is sort of a, a different world when you get yeah. into that that size things you know it, it, it probably has to be it has to be very very well run because otherwise it'd be a nightmare that somebody would forgotten this or we can't figure out how to get from a to b you know it has to be they have to be on it when you guys do those types of things where you're just you're popping in for a song or two, do you guys do a sound check at all, or is is it just you you no, show up? And, I've never done a sound check with Metallica. Now okay. <laughs> you just get, you get you know you get the last minute you know yeah you you get uh, after this song come up on stage and and a road a roadie will give you a guitar and that's it off you go yeah okay <laughs> you, you know but it's fine it's all good fun yeah it's great. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about the new album, The Coffin Train. The Coffin Train is going to be yeah. released on May 24th. And yes. I've had the opportunity now to uh, spend a little bit of time with it. I've gone through the album a handful of times. Who produced this record? Uh, Raz, the singer. Okay. Which And it's the first time he's ever produced a, a Diamond record. He... Uh, he wanted to produce this one. The last one we just sort of produced ourselves. And Raz said, I'd like to be the producer. So we all said, yeah, let's do that because we knew he could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's done a fantastic job. He put so much time and effort into making this record sound as good as it possibly could. Uh, he mixed it at home. Yeah, he, I mean, he was there from day one, you know, get, working on the songs, then into rehearsal and, you know, with every stage of the recording, he'd be there and he'd be listening out for any changes or 
you know, making suggestions without getting on everybody's nerves. <laughs> but uh, no, he's done a great job. Uh, I'm sure he'll be able to get some work at some point in his career, you know, as a as a producer. Maybe maybe this will be a good calling card for his talents. He's a, a very talented chap. He's not just a great singer and writer, but he can also produce, mix, arrange, orchestrate. So he's a, he's a real find. It's And it's done quite a bit different these days than it was back in the day with a tape recorder yeah. and a bedroom, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it was also very expensive then. We've spent a lot of money in the past on albums, and you never make that money back, whereas now we can make an album digitally, you know, much, much cheaper, fraction of the cost, and therefore instantly you... You're back in the black, if you like. You, you're not in debt to the record label for, for years or, you know, there's less stress uh, about it because you can you can uh, take a bit of time and, and not worry about the cost of the studio because it's all so much cheaper. It's great. I much prefer this digital world to uh, how it was in the analog days. Well, and I have to I have to think that as an artist, it's kind of freeing to you to be able to express yourself basically any way that you see fit, because, you know, at the end of the day, you really are basically just trying to please yourself when you write a tune, in my opinion. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I always say that. I was. I try to make a record that I like and hope others like it, too. I'm, I'm not second guessing that. You know what the Diamond Head fans want. I mean, you get feedback, and sure. sometimes you can make an album and you, you think this is my favorite track. But the the audience will always decide. They will start telling me which is their favorite track, and we, why don't you play this one live? So you you kind of listen to what the fans want, and and it does go in. It does affect your writing. You know, it's an open writing albums that that the fans aren't going to like. <laughs> really? It seems, it's a crazy, it's an obvious thing to say, but it's true. Yeah, I think it's like doing, I mean, writing a record is like a lot of things. It's, it's the same as if you were a painter or for me, if you're doing this podcast, right? They all, ultimately, I want people to listen to this show. Yeah, absolutely. The more the merrier. If I can make a record that'll sell a million copies, then I'm happy because, you know, that's never happened. And it means that I've done something right. I've finally cracked it. You know, that'd be a that'd be a lovely day that uh, a diamond it sells a load of copies because we've never sold lots of records, uh, yeah. but we keep trying. Well, nobody's selling lots of records anymore, but you know, hopefully, True. The, hopefully <laughs> you get hopefully you get downloads and you get streams and and people come to your concerts. I think basically records now are the vehicles to get people to your shows and to get people to buy Diamond Head t-shirts. Yeah. I always promote, go out and pick up the record. If you like what you hear, go buy the record. We try to turn people on to music all the time. And I would tell you, go buy the record, go see the band live, go buy a t-shirt. That's really what it's all about because that's what keeps you guys out there doing it. Who did the album artwork for this record? I really like it. Yes, so do I. It's a chap from California called the name Travis Smith. Mm-hmm. He's done lots of other bands. Uh, he's an Opeth and Cradle of Filth. And we we got Dave Mustaine put us onto him. Okay, uh, recommended him. 
So he he worked up the artwork over a number of months, and he would send. Well, I've never met the guy. He just send ideas backwards and forwards on on the internet, and uh, he's done a brilliant job. Uh, I, I think it's the best album cover we've had since like 1982 or something like that with Borrowed Time. So yeah, it, it really suits the music, and and it's very it's very modern, and I think it's. Uh, it's a great piece of art. Yeah, it's uh, it's very cool. In terms of the entire Diamond Head catalog, where do you think that this record, Coffin Train, fits into your catalog? Is it a progression? Is it a throwback? Or is it a little bit of both? And why do you feel that way? I, I think it fits in now because it's a bit more modern. It's, it's more like Diamond Head for the 21st century. Okay. Sonically... It's it's much better produced than the last album, and I just feel because the last album is so well received uh, that gave us the confidence to do this album. And we probably thought, okay, everyone likes that album, and they've accepted Raz as a singer, so let's push forward a little and and try a few more things and uh, see where we can go without without you know being too indulgent or or risking. Uh, fan base but uh, I, I think it's very much of now it relies on the classic diamond head formula of guitar riffs and uh, you know big arrangements but it's very now sonically it's, it's probably a lot heavier things like you know you mentioned canterbury and the two albums we made with nick uh, and death and progress it's a lot heavier than those albums yeah, I mean, I read uh, where you said, you know, you try to kind of stay away from more modern stuff when you're writing a record. You try to stay away yeah. from listening to more modern stuff. But when I listen to this record, I hear some of the old Diamond Head influence, especially like on a song like Belly of the Beast, the first single.
then I also hear in songs like Serrated Love and The Phoenix stuff like Soundgarden, which I know is kind of weird, yeah. but that's kind of what I hear a little bit of. Well, that's partly because Raz is a huge fan of Chris Cornell, or he was. Yeah. So there's something in Raz's style and his voice that does remind people of Chris Cornell. It reminded me, after listening to him for a while, yeah. I thought, if there's any singer I could compare him to, it would be Chris Cornell. So, And, and there's a track on this album called Shades of Black, which is a tribute to Chris Cornell lyrically. As you know, he died about two years ago. Sure. And uh, Raz wrote that lyric about the grief that he felt with not only losing Chris Cornell, but never having had the chance to meet him and say what a big fan he is and what an influence he's been. Yeah. Well, that's awesome because I didn't know any of that. Yeah, he was a huge fan. Any plans uh, for you guys to maybe try to get over here to the States for any like festivals or anything like that? Well, we're looking into them. We came over in 2017 and we did, I think we did Psycho Las Vegas and we did some dates around then. Uh, we're always looking for offers. Uh, there's nothing concrete yet. It's either going to be towards the end of the year or into next year. We'd quite like to do a support tour or like you say, more festivals. We've got professional management now. We've got Siren Management Great. managing us, and we've never had professional management. We've always had guys who are just trying to help out, and you know they've never done it before. And now we're with a proper company that also managed Saxon and Europe and Blackstar Riders. And so we're in with a roster of, of bands that works with us, of, of a, you know, a similar sort of style, and... Uh, I think that will open quite a few more doors. We've already got some big festivals in Europe that we couldn't get previously. Yeah. Uh, so let's see you know, what happens in the next 12, 18 months. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Brian, I appreciate your time. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. I want to be respectful of your time. No problem. It's been a pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for the call. Awesome. Once again, The Coffin Train released May 24th. Find it wherever you find your records today. Thanks, Brian. <laughs>
Thank you. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Were they shot? Were they shot? 
would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.